Okay, we're going to hear the top of Kufrav Hayom with Aleph by the two dots. Mer says, Tanu Banan, Shivrei Tanur Yashan, Harehein Kechol HaKelim, Anitalim Bechatzer, Divrei Rabbi Meir. Rabbi Huda Meir, Ain Anitalim. So we have a machloket here between Rabbi Huda and Rabbi Meir with regards to the shards of an older oven. Older oven that breaks, and you have the shards here. What is their status in terms of Shabbat? Rabbi Meir says they're like all other Kelim. Tosvot points out it's Lav Davko in the Chatzer, but all other Kelim, depending on what the opinions of the Amoraim that we saw yesterday where you can carry these items whether it's the Chatzer the Carmelite the Shuter Rabim those items are not considered to be Muksa according to Rabbi Meir Yehuda says these shards of this older oven are considered to be Muksa Heid Rabbi Yossi Mishum Rabbi Liezer Ben Yaakov Ashivrei Tonur Yashan Shinitalim B'Shabbat first thing is similar to Rabbi Meir that if you have broken shards from an older oven that you're allowed to move them on Shabbat there's no problem Muksa Ve'al Kisu Yo She'enu Tzarech Beit Yad and the cover of the Tanur does not require a handle on it. It's still classified as a kali, the cover of the tanur, even without a handle on it, and it's not muksa. Mar wants to know about Mike Mifluge. This machloket here between Rabbi Meir and Rabbi Hudo, what is it premised on? What does it revolve around? We have three answers that have been given by the Gemara. We're going to have first answer by Abaye, the answer by Rovo, and then a third answer by Rav Ashi. Rav Ashi is actually going to take us back to Abaye's answer and just modify it so it doesn't have the problem that Rovo raises with it. They're arguing in the exact same machloket that we had in the previous Mishnah. The previous Mishnah said that the Tanakhama believes in order for a shard to have a din of a keli on Shabbat and not to be muksa, it has to do something. It has to have some utility, some function. That is sufficient that it retains a shame kli and is not muksa on Shabbat. Rabbi Hudo in that Mishnah argues and says, not only has to be functional, have utility, but it has to be something akin to the original keli. Something that is similar in nature to what it originally did when it was in the larger keli. So Machloket Rabbi Meir has the Tanakhama, the Stam Mishnah Rabbi Meir. Rabbi Huda in this previous Mishnah that we saw. So what Abaye suggests over here is that the Machloket Rabbi Meir and Rabbi Huda here by Tanur is no different than we saw in our Mishnah. It's the exact same Afokit. I have a Shiva Keli. I want to know, this Shiva, can I use it? Or not use it on Shabbat? Rabbi Meir says, go ahead. It has some function, it has some utility, go ahead and use it. Rabbi Yudha says, it's not acting or doing the same thing it did before, like a Tanur. cannot use it on Shabbat. It's considered to be Muksa. And each one of them is consistent with their opinion in the Mishnah. That's what they are advocating over here as well by the Tanur Ayashan. So Matkiflo Rovo. Rovo says, that's nice, Abayi, but Ihochi, Adamifle Bishivre Tanur, Lifle Bishivre Kili, Be'alma. Why have their machloket narrowed to be discussing simply an old oven? It's true of all Kalim. So why not speak in the more generic sense like the Mishnah did? Which is kola kelim, any keli. Why would you specify a type of keli like a tonor yashan versus just saying the generic term keli? And so he says, I don't see that as being the explanation for this machloket because you have a better way of expressing this machloket which would give you a broader perspective by saying kola kelim instead of simply saying shivrei tonor yashan. Ela Amarovo, so now Rovo offers another alternative as to what their machloket is. Bishivre dahai tanur kamifluge. They are arguing about the shards of this tanur. This tanur referring to the Mishnah in Kelim. That's not, we have a Mishnah in Kelim that says, Natano alpia bor o alpia dol. He placed the tanur either onto a pit or onto a built out area. Benatan sham evan. And then he places a stone in there. Just some background in terms of a tanur. Tanur in oven in their day, 
is generally shaped like a cone. It is wider at the base and narrower at the top. That's how it built the intensity of the heat. By having it narrow towards the top, that would maintain the heat and increase the intensity of the heat inside the tenor. Number two is the cone was hollow and open on the top and open on the bottom. It had no base and it had no top. The way that they created the base of the tenor was that they cemented it into the ground. They put it onto the ground, they put it onto the floor, and then they cemented it in. Then the ground itself becomes the base of the tenor. So you fire up the tenor from the base underneath, and then the heat rises into the tenor, and that's what keeps it hot. In addition to that, we saw that Rabbi Lezben Yaakov has, they have covers for the tenor. They can also put on top of the opening of the tenor, and that would also maintain the heat or retain the heat inside. So that's the tenor that we're talking about. This tenor, instead of placing it on flat ground now, they decide to place it over a bore, over a pit. By placing it over a pit, you've done two things. One is that the tenor may not fit exactly into the bore. It might be that when you try to insert it into the bore, it'll sink all the way to the bottom. So how do I prevent a tenor from sinking to the bottom when it doesn't sit on top of the bore? So the answer is just Evan. You put a stone there, wedge something in there to prevent it from sinking to the bottom of the bore to stay at the top of the bore. As you can see, some of these pictures that I brought for you here is an Evan or a stone, or here another one here is a stone that's wedged in there that holds the tenor at ground level. So it's not sinking down to the base of the bore, it's staying at the top of the bore. Now the difference between a bore and a dot, Rashi over here says, and we've seen it other places, in the Gemara is that a bore is a dugout cistern pit that has nothing built into it. It's simply the dugout pit. A dot, on the other hand, is, it can be below ground, above ground, but it's built out, it's bricked out. So it's not simply the pit, but a pit that has bricks around it, so that it's a properly built out area around it. Either way, you have the same effect. You can see here, this is the dot or the bore. Now what the issue here is, that you're going to fire up the tanur from the base of the bore. That's where the floor is. The floor of the tanur now is the base of the bore. But the tanur is sitting up at ground level, because you wedge that stone in there to keep it up ground level so you can use it. You have to reaccess the tenor. Now the way they cooked in the tenor was that they used to put the bread on the walls of the tenor. There was no base. You couldn't cook on the base because that's where the fire was. And you used to plaster, push the bread onto the walls of the tenor and you used to bake in that manner. Now he lights a fire down at the base of the bore. You're significantly below the base level of the tenor. So the fire is further away from the tanur at the top. That's the scenario that we're discussing right now, is where that fire is far away from it. Now you have a number of issues then when you light the fire at the bottom. Number one is the distance from the base of the tanur. The other issue is how close is the wall of the tanur to the wall of the bore. Because the further away the wall of the tenor is from the bore, the more chance of heat escaping from below. The whole idea of the tenor is that you build intensity of heat because you have heat, and it narrows towards the top, and the heat builds, and that's how it bakes, that's how it cooks. But if you're sitting on a bore and you wedged a stone in to hold it up, then you have gapping around the edges of the tenor where the heat can get out. So what you want is two things in order to make this tenor work. You want the least amount of space between the wall of the tenor and the wall of the bore, and you want the tenor to be as close as possible to the base of the bore. That will increase the intensity of the heat. Right, this is all important to the machloka that we're going to discuss right now between Rabbi Yehuda and the Chachamim. Rabbi Yehuda Omer, im mesik milamata v'hin nisok milamalo, 
Tomei. If when you fire it up in the base of the bore, be able to build the intensity of the heat up above, then it's Tomei. Then it's Tomei because now it's a Kli, it's a proper Tanur. Vimlav Tahor. If it doesn't work, then it's Tahor. As long as it can be heated, even though this is not the best heating mechanism, it's not the most insulated tanur, it is tamay. The machlok between Rabbi Yudah and the Chachamim as to the intensity of heat that you have to create in order for the tanur to be classified as a tanur. Now this is important in Klicheres in general. When we're talking about a tanur and oven here, we're talking about an earthenware oven, Klicheres. Klicheres is only Mikabal Tumah once there is Gemar Melacha. Gemar Melacha means that it's finished. The Kli is now made and finished. It's gone through the final process of making it into a Kli. The final process of making an oven into oven is when you fire it up the first time. Firing it up the first time is what determines or makes it into a tanur, and that is the gemar malacha for a klicheres. So what Rabbi Yehuda is basically saying here is, if you fire it up, and it's a proper firing up, the heat intensity is this equivalent to what it would have been if it was on the ground, then you have a kli here, and you have a gemar malacha, and it could be makabal tumah. On the other hand, if the heat intensity doesn't build to that, you lack gemar malacha. Since you lack gemar malacha, it's not a kli. It's not a kli, it won't be makabal tumah. That's Rabbi Yehuda's shita. Chachamim say, mikom akom. Doesn't matter. Whatever heating you got there, that's enough to be classified as a gemar melacha, and it will be mikabel tumah. What do they argue about? What are they arguing about there, of Yehudah and Chachamim? They're arguing by Haikra, in this pasuk. Tanur v'kirayim yutatz, t'meimim, u'tmeimim yulachem. So in order to be mitaher at tanur and ikirayim, tanur and ikirayim are the ovens and the stoves, in order to mitahir them, you have to yutatz. You have to uproot them. So just to note, in general, klicheres, in order to mitahir klicheres, you cannot be mitahir klicheres. You are shover. You break the klicheres. That's the only way to deal with klicheres tamay. The word shvira or lishbor is used by kelim. By things like an oven or a stove that is attached to the ground, the term that you use is yutatz, to uproot, nititza. So that's what the Torah says. With regards to a tenur kirayim that are earthenware, yutatz. You have to uproot them. Not only do you have to uproot them, you have to break them. You can't have any single piece of the tanur that remains. It's the rov in order to be mitaher this tanur. Tmeim heim, they are tamei. Utmeim heim iulachem, and they will be tamei for you. It's a double lashon here, almost repetitive. The fact that they are tamei for you and they are tamei for you. Rabbi Yehuda savar mechusa nititza tamei. If the only thing lacking in your Stover oven here is that it needs to be uprooted. In order to be mitaherit, all you would have to do was nititza. Then it's mikabel tuma. That means that it's been fired up properly. Everything's done properly. The only thing left to do with this in order to be mitaherit is nititza, is uprooting it. The other nititza. If it's not just mechusar nititza, then it's tahor. Why is it not mechusar nititza? Because in this case, when you fired up this tanur and you sat it above the hole. Uprooting it, that's no big deal. It's not sealed in properly. It's not created in a way that will build the heat intensity that's normal. So, Nitiza, it's already natuts. It's uprooted it to start with because it wasn't placed properly. It wasn't sealed or insulated properly. Since it wasn't sealed or insulated properly, it's far natuts. It's as if it's uprooted already. It's as if it never was placed in and locked in place. And therefore, it's tahor. That's what Behuda's drasha. Takes the word Nitiza. And he says, in the word Nitiza, I'll tell you, the only thing that's tame is something that is well sealed, well insulated, fires up properly, and then you have to uproot it to be mitayaret. 
But if something doesn't have any of those factors in it, and therefore you don't really need to uproot it because it's not working, it's not functioning like a normal tanur, that will be tahor. That's Rabbi Yehuda's opinion. The repetition in the pasuk of tameim heim and tameim yulachem teaches you tameim mikol makom. Doesn't matter. If you fired it up, no matter how high the intensity of heat is in that firing up, it's to make. For Abana, Nami Aktiv Yutats, what are they going to do with the Yutats? So how the Idakisa, that goes in the other direction. The other direction means, we're all on Yutats, the Chumra, not the Kula. Rabbi Yehuda used the word Yutats to teach you a Kula. The Chamim used Yutats to teach you a Chumra. The Salkadat Chamina, I would have thought when it comes to a stove or an oven, came into Chabre Ba'aro. They're attached to the ground. Therefore, Kegufa Da'aradami. They're like the ground. Anything that's Mechuber the Karbka is not Mechabal Tumah. A house is not Mechabal Tumah because it's Mechuber the Karka. Mechuber the Karka is something that would not be Mechabal Tumah. So here, when you seal the oven into the ground, you would assume that it's now Mechuber the Karka. It should not be Mechabal Tumah. Along comes the Pasuk and says, how do you make an oven or a stove Tahor? Nititza. Uprooting. Uprooting by definition means that it was Mechubar. It was attached to the ground. So the Torah teaches you here that Mechuber the Karka is not a reason to say it's Tahor. It is Tameh because you need Nititza. Nititza implies it was Mechubar and now needs Nititza. That's what the word Yutatz teaches you according to Chachamim. Vidach Nami, according to What's he going to do with the word which sounds like there is extra tumah here by the stove in the oven? There he says that he'll use for that he uses for this statement of Rishon. is only in the first firing. In the first firing, where the determination of the firing it up is to whether it's made a clear or not, there Rabbi Yehuda has a very high standard. The high threshold is it has to reach the normal intensity of a stove or an oven in that situation. Otherwise, it's not classified as a Gemar Kli. It hasn't been finished. Not Gemar Malach, not Gemar Kli. The second time you come to fire it up, then if it's hanging around the neck of a camel, meaning that it's high up over the ground and you're trying to heat it up from underneath, that is sufficient. He will agree to the Chachamim's threshold, which is very low, that that is considered to be a Kli. It's a Kli already, because the Hesek Rishon was done. It already attained the status of Kli. So as soon as it's attained the status of Kli, for this next time, the Hesek isn't as important. So Amar Ula, Ula says you would conclude from this, the Hesek Rishon Rabbanan, Afilu Talui B'Tavar Gamal. That for the Rabbanan, even if it's hanging around the neck of the Gamal the first time, and you do a Hesek, it's Tameh. Because for them, that's a Gemar Malachim. Gemar Malachim is any Hesek whatsoever is sufficient. Any heating up or firing up of this oven is sufficient to make get it over the threshold of Gemar Kli. So now, what is the Machloket? We went through all of this. We have Machloket between Rabbi Yudah and the Rabbanan. And that's going to roll over into our Machloket here between Rabbi Meir and Rabbi Yudah. That is this Tanur that we're talking about in the Mishnah in Kelim, which is a Tanur that was wedged into a bore that's being heated up and doesn't meet that heat intensity of a normal oven. In that case, the Rabbanan believe Tamei. It's a Gemar Kli, Gemar Malacha, and you have an oven here. But once you have an oven, you have a kli. You have shivrei tanur. That shivrei tanur will also not be muksa on Shabbat. You have a kli, and now you have shards of a kli, and that is permitted to carry on Shabbat. That's Rabbi Meir's opinion. Rabbi Yehuda the Shita, though, says, when you fire up an oven in this manner, it doesn't attain Gemar Malacha. It does not become a kli. So it's not only is the oven not a kli, but of course, the shards themselves are not going to be a kli. They're going to be muksa on Shabbat. You have shards from a non-glee. Shards from a non-glee are muksa because the glee itself was also muksa. It never reached the status of glee. Never reaches the status of glee. You can't have shards that are not going to be muksa because the quote-unquote glee itself is not muksa because it didn't attain the shame glee. So Rav Ashi asks the obvious question, which is Mativ Rav Ashi Yochi. Ad the mifle gave me shivrei tenor. 
Why do you have Rabbi Meir and Rabbi Yehuda arguing about the shvarim, the shards of the oven? You could argue about the oven itself. Their machloket is not about the shards between Rabbi Yehuda and the Chachamim and the Mishnah and Kelim. It's about the oven itself. Is the oven a kli or not a kli? That's the real question. The shards are just a derivative of that. Because the oven's a kli, the shards are not muksa. If the oven's not a kli, then the shards are muksa. The real question is, is the oven a kli or not? Not whether the shards are a kelim or not. Hashta tanur gufa the Rabbi lohavi mono. According to Rabbi Yudha, the Tanur itself is not considered to be a Kaili, then certainly Shvarabi Bai, you have to tell me a bright Tosefta that tells me about the Shvarim? I don't need that. So that's why Ravashi rejects Rav's understanding of the Machloket. And now we have the third attempt at this, Alam Ravashi, the Olam Ki Adamran Mikara. So like what we said originally, like what we said originally is Abaye. Going back to Abaye's opinion, Abaye's opinion was that this Machloket is no different than the Machloket in our Mishnah. Tanur Yashan is like our Mishnah, and like Kelim in our Mishnah. What about the question of Rava on Abaye, which was, why argue about Tanur Yashan? Just argue about Kelim in general. So that, Ravashi says, tapko. It's a case where it does do this Maset Tapko. Maset Tapko is when you take the Re'afim, the roof tiles from your house, those types of roof tiles, and you heat them from underneath. By heating up those clay tiles, if you fire them, if you put a fire underneath them and heat them up, then you can cook on top of them. So that's what you have here. You have an oven that broke. The pieces of the shards from the oven, you can't use them as an oven anymore. They're pieces, they're shards. What you can do is you can put fire underneath those shards and then cook on top of those shards. So it does cook. So now this is the question. The question which relates back to our Mishnah, which is that Rabbi Yehuda demands that the item does, me'ain melachtan arishona, has to do something akin to the original purpose of the stove. And that's what the Gemara says here. Rabbi Meir, the Dvarav, the Rabbi Yehuda, Ka'amar. Rabbi Meir speaking in the position of Rabbi Yehuda. Lididi, Rabbi Meir says, if it's my shita, filubosin me'ain melacha. I don't need it to do anything similar to the original purpose. As long as it has utility or purpose, it's fine. So, this is not even relevant for me. But, el didach, odoli miha, at least you should admit to me the begai gavnam melachtohu. Then when it does maisetapka, that's close enough, akin to the original melacha, similar to the original melacha. But that should be sufficient to say that it's still considered a keli and it won't be muksim. Rabbi Yehuda says, no, I disagree. Lo dummy, they're not similar. Hotam hesoko bifnim, hacha hesoko mi The way that the tanur works is that the heat is on the inside. You heat on the inside and you cook on the inside. Whereas by this shard, you heat from the opposite side on which you cook. You heat underneath it and then you cook on the other side of the shard. So you're actually cooking on the opposite side of the heating side. Hotam mi umad. In the tanur, the way it bakes or cooks is that you put the stuff on the walls. So it cooks in the upright position. Whereas over here, it cooks in the horizontal position. You lay the shard down and you cook on top of it when it's laying down. So it says, yes, they're both quote-unquote cooking, but they're different methodologies for cooking, and therefore it's not considered to be me'en melachtan arishona, and it would be muksa because these shards are no longer functioning like the original tanur. So the answer is that they have a machloket here, but the entire machloket between Rabbi Yehuda and Rabbi Yehuda is in the sheet of Rabbi Yehuda. What is considered to be main melachtan? And that's the disagreement here between Rabbi and Rabbi Yehuda. Rabbi says, for me, I don't even need this. But for you, at least consider this type of cooking to be main melachtan. And Rabbi Yehuda rejects it and says, no, they're different enough that I don't consider it to be main melachtan rishona. Now, hey, Rabbi Yossi, Mishim, Rabbi Lezim, and Yaakov, Shavivrei Tanur Yashan Shenitalin B'Shabbat, like Rabbi Meir, and the cover for a tanur does not require a handle. Like whom do we carry the covers of our tanurim in the city of Matamaxia? They don't have any handles on them. 
Come on, Rabbi Lezer ben Yaakov. We are paskening like Rabbi Lezer ben Yaakov. All right, next Mishnah. You have a stone that is wedged into a gourd or a pumpkin of sorts. You have here is any gourd or pumpkin has a very hard outer shell. So if you cut open a gourd or a pumpkin and then you clean it at the inside, you have made for yourself the equivalent of a bucket or a bowl that is made out of the skin, the hard outer shell of a pumpkin or a gourd. And you want to use that for drawing water. So that's a great idea. Now I have a bowl, a bucket, I can use it to draw water. The only problem is that it's too light to sink into the water. It's going to float on top of the water if you lower it in. So what I need to do is I need to weigh it down. How do I weigh it down? I put a stone inside of it. The problem with the stone is that a stone is muksa on Shabbat. So how do I make sure that a stone is not muksa on Shabbat? I have to put it into or place it or do a maisa with it that shows that I'm interested in having it on Shabbat and utilizing it on Shabbat. So that's what the Mishnah says here. If I have in Shibikuriyah, I have this stone that is inside the gourd or the wall of the pumpkin. If when you draw water with it, it doesn't fall out, then then you can use it on Shabbat. Because then basically the stone becomes batel to the gourd. It's there to function on behalf of the gourd. And you've designated this stone to be useful in that way. So now the stone is in Muksa. And you can use this or utilize it on Shabbat without any problem. On the other hand, in Lav, if when you submerge the pumpkin or the gourd, the stone will float away, then in Mamalimba, then you cannot fill with it. Because then the stone retains its shame Muksa. Because you don't really care about the stone. If you cared about the stone, you would have fixed it or affixed it in a way that it wouldn't float away. The fact is you don't really care about the stone because when it goes down, it's going to get lost anyway. And so you're not focused on the stone. That means the stone remains a stone. Stone is muksa on Shabbat. Now you have a stone that's inside the gourd or this pumpkin that becomes a busis, the davar asur. You have an evan, you have a stone inside of it. And now this is the base holding up the stone. So not only is the stone muksa, now you've created a problem for the pumpkin and the gourd as well. It becomes a busis, the davar asur. So that's what the Mishnah says. You can draw with a pumpkin that has a stone in it when the stone is batel to the pumpkin, when it's functional with the pumpkin. If it's simply there, kind of leftovers, and it's going to float away and you don't really care about it, then the stone remains muksa. If the stone remains muksa, then you can't utilize that on Shabbat to draw water. Now, Zmura, you have a vine, a vine from a grapevine. Sheik shura bitfiach, that is attached to a bucket. So instead of having a rope to lower the bucket in to draw the water, you use a vine to do that. So that is fine. If it's tied to the bucket, you can use it on Shabbat because you've now designated. The vine itself would have been muksa by itself because it has no function on Shabbat. Here you gave it function. Since you gave it function, it's now usable on Shabbat and it's no longer muksa. Kaka cholom, the plug of the windows. Now in their day, windows, when they opened and closed their windows, they didn't have glass in their windows. When they opened and closed their windows, they literally took the window out. They had shutters or a trees that went into the window. So at night, or when you wanted to close it, you put the shutters in, you put the trisim in, and the window was closed. You want to open it up, you have to take those trisim out of the window, literally out, and then the window was fully open. That's how you open the window. So this pakaka chalon, if it's tied to the building, to the window, and it's hanging, it does not reach the ground, then pokakim bo, you can use it on Shabbat, meaning that you can open and close the window then on Shabbat. What Rabbi Lezer is worried about is, it looks like you're building on Shabbat. When you fill in the windows, you put the trisim, the shutters into the window, it looks like you're now finishing off or working on a binyan, building, because you're doing something that looks like you're putting up a board, a wall, or some sort on the building. 
So if it's tied to the window or the building, and it doesn't drop to the ground, then it's clear that these are a part of the window, a trice, and it falls out, goes in, falls out. That's fine, because that's not what like, looks like building. On the other hand, if it's on the ground, or if it's not tied, then it looks like it's a regular board that you're putting in, and that looks like you're building on Shabbat. So according to Rabbi Lezer, you need both of those things. You need to be taloi and to be tied in order for it to lose the shame of Either way, you can be pokeik. Again, we'll see more about the Chachamim's position tomorrow on tomorrow's daf. It's not hatam. We have a Mishnah later on in the Mesechta. Evan shall be a chavit. You have a stone that's on top of a barrel. Mate al-tzida v'hinofelet. You can tilt it on its side and the stone falls off. So what you have here is you have a barrel, a barrel of wine, which is fine on Shabbat to move around. It's a kli. No problem. Top of it, you have a stone that is muksa. Muksa you can't pick up on Shabbat. So now I have a problem. I want to get this barrel. I want to lift up this barrel. So what am I going to do? So I know that by muksa I can do tiltal minatzad. I can do indirect movement of muksa. I can't do direct movement of muksa. So what I'll do is I'll tilt the barrel to its side and the stone will fall off the top of the barrel. So that way I've moved the muksa in an indirect way. And now I can move my barrel because the muksa is no longer on it. So that's what it says. Matelzida, you tip the barrel on its side and the stone falls off. So that's the way to get rid of this muksa. The only problem is, why isn't this a bosis ladover asur? You have a stone on top, you have the barrel on the bottom, now the barrel supporting the stone. Because the bosis ladover asur, it's a bosis ladover asur, not only can you not move the stone, you can't move the barrel. The barrel is now muksa because it became a bosis, a base for something that is asur. So now we have the qualification. It's only a case where you forgot the stone on top of the barrel. Because in that case, the barrel does not become a bosis ladover asur when you forget it there. When you forget it, that was accidental. So you didn't intend for the barrel to be the base for the stone. Therefore, you could still move the barrel. If you can move the barrel, you could tip it on its side and do tilt to its side to remove the stone. On the other hand, aval meniach, if you intentionally put the stone on top of the barrel, the barrel now becomes a bosis ladover asur. Not only can you not move the rock or stone on top, you cannot move the barrel underneath because now it's muksa. It's a bosis ladover asur and you can't do this. Okay, so we'll see. That's Rav Yosef's position, what you just suggested. Next position in the Gemara. Rav Yosef, Amar Rav Asi, Amar Rav Yochanan. And now we have Rav Yosef quoting the name of Rav Asi and Rav Yochanan. So truthfully, the Machlokin here is not between Rav Yosef and Rabba. Because Rav Yosef and Rabba are quoting two different Amoraim in the name of Rav Yochanan. Rav Yochanan lives in Eretz Yisrael. Now we have Rabbi Ami and Rabbi Asi who are arguing about what Rav Yochanan said. So the Machloket is really between Rabbi Ami and Rabbi Asi. Rabbi and Rabbi Yosef, who live in Bavel, are just simply repeating what they heard, either from Rabbi Asi and from Rabbi Ami. It's not necessary to say that Rabbi and Rabbi Yosef necessarily disagree. They are just simply quoting what they heard from either Rabbi Ami or Rabbi Asi, who are quoting Rabbi Yochanan. So the real Machloket here is between Rabbi Ami and Rabbi Asi, as to what Rabbi Yochanan said. So far, the first statement we saw from Ma'abi in the name of Rabbi Yochanan is that if you forget it, it's fine to tilt it and to dump it off till the minute side. If you leave it intentionally, buses the Dabra so you can't move the barrel at all. Yosef, I'm Rabbi Asi, I'm Rabbi Yochanan. So now Rabbi Asi says, this is what Rabbi Yochanan said. It's only true when you forget it there that you have to do tilt the minute side and dump the stone off. If you place it there intentionally, it now becomes a part of the cover of the chavit. You're using it to hold the cover down, to weigh the cover down. You've now given function to the stone. To give function to the stone, it's no longer muksa because you've designated, you've been miyached it for a purpose on Shabbat that is mutar. 
And therefore, it loses all shame muksa in that case. So that's Rabbi Asi's opinion about what Rabbi Yochanan said with regards to this Mishnah, or how to qualify this Mishnah. Amar Rabba, Motvinan Ashemaitin. They ask on my memra, the one that I quoted in the name of Rabbi Ami, Ha'evin Shebikuriya, the stone that is in the wall of the gourd, imimalimba, veinunofelet, if you fill it up and it doesn't fall out, mimalimba. And therefore, what you see is that when a stone is functional as a part of the kli, then it's mutar to use on Shabbat. So they ask my quoting from Rabbi Ami, why isn't it that over here when you put the stone on top of the chavit, that it's also considered to be okay to use on Shabbat. He says, Velohi, the cases are not comparable. Hotam came into Hadko, Shavyadofen. By the case of the pumpkin of the gourd, the stone is inserted in such a way that it's tight and it won't come out anymore. That's why it becomes Batel to the Kli. And that's why the Evan is allowed to be used on Shabbat. On the other hand, in the case over here, you're talking about a stone that's just placed on top of the barrel. That can come off so easily. That's not considered to be Batel to the Kli. That's not considered to be functional with the Kli. Amar of Yosef, umatvina and shmaitin. They ask on my memory that I quote in the name of Rabbi Ami, imlav emem alimba. If the stone is not affixed and it floats away, then you're not allowed to use it. It's muksa. So, so it's over here. The stone's not affixed on top of the barrel, so it should also be muksa. It says below you, the comparison is incorrect. Hotam came into lohadka, bitulei batba. Over there, since he was not affixed into the gourd of the pumpkin, he doesn't have in mind for it to stay. He doesn't think it's going to be useful on Shabbat. It's going to float away. He doesn't care about the stone. Over here, when he places it simply out of the barrel, it's not going anywhere. It's not going to float away, and therefore it's useful on Shabbat. So this is important to keep in mind in general when it comes to muksa on Shabbat. We're going to bump into it here in this Masechta, more so in Beitz as well. Is that if you have to look at what the default status of an item is, and then how do you change that default status? Certain items by default are muksa. They're automatically muksa, and you have to do something actively in order to change that status. So for instance, stones, sticks, dirt that's outside, all of that's automatically muksa. Number one, they're not kalim. That's what we saw in yesterday's daf. They're not a keli. So they have no function up front. And there are things that you don't normally use or utilize on Shabbat. So because of that, they are by default muksa. If you want to engage with them on Shabbat, then you're going to have to do something active in order to say that this is designated for Shabbat. We talked about the doorstop. You want to use a stone or rock for a doorstop. You've got to designate it before Shabbat that I want to use this as a doorstop. So once it's functional before Shabbat, that takes away its shame muksa. There are other things like food. Food items by default are not muksa. They're automatically ready to use on Shabbat because people eat on Shabbat. Food is something that is in within your world on Shabbat and is not muksa. In order to make food items muksa, you have to actually actively be mekatsa them. That's what we call mekatsa lebi yadayim. That is, for instance, if you take the fruits, you put them up on the roof and you set them out there to dry for a couple months. That's mekatsa lebi yadayim. That's actively pushing them away because you are now assuming they're not going to be used for many months and you're pushing them out of your world of the current status or the current Shabbat. So you always have to look at what's the default status and then how do I remove that default status? So by stone, the default status is muksa. So the question here is how do I remove that default status? And that's what the Gemara is about to say. So by my kamiflage, what is this machloke between Rabbi Ami and Rabbi Asi? Mar savar be'inen maseh, umar savar lo be'inen maseh. Rabbi Ami thinks that you need an action in order to change the default status of the stone from muksa to not muksa, you need to take an action. You need to take a maise. On the other hand, Rabbi Ami believes that simply designating bimiyacheded is sufficient to change it from the default status of muksa into usable on Shabbat. The question is, and this is what we just discussed before, if the default status of the stone is muksa, 
How do I move it from Muxer to usable on Shabbat? So Rabbi Ami suggests that you need an action to do this. Rabbi Asi says, you just need to be miyachated. You need to have in mind that you're going to use it. Think about it. That's sufficient. And they are consistent with their opinion in this case, which is the chiyat of Rabdimi. When Rabdimi came from Eretz Yisrael, Rabbi Chanina says, that Rabbi Zer said in his name, Rabbi Chanina, it was a time that Rabbi went to a certain location, he found basically a pile of stones. But here a nidbach is the equivalent of a pallet. A pallet of stones or, or bricks that were placed there. So they were clearly designated for building. They were building materials which would otherwise make them on Shabbat. Now he wants to use them on Shabbat for the students to sit on. He wants to set them up to make seats out of them to use them for sitting on. So he said to his students, So go ahead and think about them or have in mind that we are going to sit on them tomorrow. So therefore, once you have in mind to sit on them, that changes them from being designated for binyan now to be designated for sitting on. And Rebbe did not require them to do any action in order to change the default status of these building materials from muksa to non muksa On the other hand, Rebbe Yochanan Amar, Yitzrichan Rebbe Lamaseh. Yochanan says, Rebbe required a maiseh. He disagrees with Rabbi Chanina and says the Rebbe required a maiseh. My Amar Lahu. Then what did he say to them? According to Rabbi Yochanan, who says he required a maiseh, what did Rebbe instruct them to do? Here we have Machloket, Rabbi Ami, and Rabbi Asi. Rabbi Ami Amar Tzu Vilimdum Amar Lahu. Rabbi Ami says, you know what he told them to do? Go out, take them off the pallet, and set them up as chairs. That's what he said to them. You have to do a full-fledged ma'aseh to change them from building materials into chairs. Go out and now stack them as chairs. Make them into chairs. Set them up like chairs so that's clear that they're not muks anymore. Rabbi Asi Amar Tzu V'shif Shifom Amar Lahu says go out and scrape them off. You don't have to set them up as chairs. We'll do that tomorrow. Just go out and clear off the dirt and the cement from them so that they're usable for sitting on. Do something small to indicate that you're going to Use it or utilize it tomorrow. You don't have to do a full-fledged maizeh, just something small. So the Gemara says that that's consistent with their opinions above. Over here by the barrel, Rabbi Ami believes that when you put a stone on top of the barrel, it remains muksa. You haven't done anything significant to the stone in order to change it from muksa, its default status, into something that is now cover of a chalit. On the other hand, Rabbi Asi believes you only need a small maizeh to change it. That placement on top of the barrel is enough. Now Tosafot points out that really the cases aren't exactly the same because by the stones and the pallet of stones, both Rabbi Ami and Rabbi Asi require some form of action. They require either you take them off and make them into seats or that you scrape them off so that the teeth is off. Whereas by the barrel, we don't require anything. Just place it on top and that's enough. So Tosafot says that in different situations you will require a different amount of effort or indication of whether this is designated depending on what the situation is, depending on how muxo the item is. Here they're clearly designated as building materials. So in order to take away that shame building materials you have to do a little more of a mindset to take it away. Over here you're taking a stone or a brick whatever you're taking by the barrel there its default status is muxa but it hasn't been designated for something that's muxa. So therefore, to remove the default status, you don't require as high a threshold. But they're saying basically that their makokit is consistent here, that Rabbi Ami requires a higher threshold to make something not mukseh, whereas Rabbi Asi has a lower threshold. And that's the same as their makokit and Rabbi Yochanan before. When you have a stone on top of the barrel, is that stone mukseh? That's Rabbi Ami's opinion because you didn't do anything to show that it's not a stone anymore. Whereas Rabbi Asi believes that simply putting it on top of the barrel is enough to indicate that you're using it on Shabbat. Rabbi Yossi ben Shaul Omer, so'ar shol parotava. The story of Rabbi wasn't about bricks or stones, 
but rather a pile of beams. It's a pile of wood that's on a pallet that's sitting there. I mean, it's the same scenario, just it wasn't stones and rocks, it was beams. Wasn't even about stones, bricks, or beams. It was about the feeler rod for the boats. The feeler rod for the boats was a long stick that they used to have on the boats that they used to use and put out in front of the boat to see how deep the water was. When they're going up the canals or the rivers, they wanted to make sure that the boat would not capsize, would not be beached. So how do they do that? They stick a rod out to make sure that the water is deep enough. So they need a very long and straight rod in order to do that. So he says it's a pile of those rods. Now the man says, Mondamar Goshosh. The one who says that it was a pile of these types of rods, Koshkein Sawar. Then certainly a pile of beams would have the same status. A Goshosh is a much more unique, expensive, valuable type of item. So therefore, if he believes that you can change Geshosh from being a feeler prodder into a seat on Shabbat, and he certainly thinks you could change a beam into a seat on Shabbat. On the other hand, Mandamar Sowar, the one who says that he was talking about a pile of beams, about Geshosh Kapitale. Geshosh is something that is Muksa Machmat Chisaronkis, because it's such a valuable item, it's so difficult to make, that its value and utility for its primary purpose far exceeds anything else that you can do with it, and therefore you would not allow anybody to do anything else with it. If you look, so far, every time we've had Muksa Machmat Kisaron Kis in the Gemara, Rashi always emphasizes that is Mikatzelei B'yadayim. Mikatzelei B'yadayim is that you push it out of the world of Shabbat actively, because of the way that you interact with this item. It's general, that's the way you would interact with it, but in Shabbat it has relevance. Which is that, it's a kli. It's a kli, it should be governed by the dinim of kli shemlachtoli yisur. Which is, you can use it for tzorah kufo tzorah mekomo, but it's not governed that way. Why? Because you're makatzalei biyadayim. You push it out of the world of Shabbat. Correct. Because of the way you interact with it and its value, you push it out of the world of Shabbat. In that, its default status should have been a kli shemlachtoli yisur. That's the default status. If you did nothing, that should be its status. But, because of the way that you interact with this item, all the time, right, even on Chol, the way you interact with it indicates that it's so valuable, and its primary purpose is so important, that you would not use it for any alternative purpose, that shows that it's Katzalei Beidam. You're Makatzid for this one purpose, which is Easter, and therefore it's not relevant on Shabbat. And that's why he would say, if you have a pile of these feeler sticks, you can't even change them into seats. You can't do anything to change them. They are muksa, period, because you were makatzalebi yadai. Therefore, you can't do anything to change them from being muksa into non-muksa. Over here, Rashi points out that even Rabbi Shimon is mode be muksa machmat kis. Even though Rabbi Shimon in general does not hold of muksa, of the world of muksa, Rabbi Yudha is the one who holds of muksa, Rabbi Shimon does not hold of muksa, there are Amoraim throughout the Gemara here and in other Masechto that say that Rabbi Shimon's mode in certain extreme cases of muksa. Some of those are nolad. Some of the Amoraim believe that Rabbi Shimon's mode by nolad or extreme forms of nolad, that there is muksa. And here's another one, that muksa machmat kis. Even Rabbi Shimon agrees, because that's mekatsa levi adayim. That's active mekatsa. When you're actively mekatsa, then Rabbi Shimon agrees that muksa machmat kis applies in this case. It may not work. You may not be over, able to override the default status here. Because would you really use it? If it was a weekday, would you ever do such a thing? The answer is no. So why should you be able to change that on Shabbat? If during the week that you might also make exceptions to the rule and use it, then it's not really muksa machmat chisaron kis. If that's the case, then you can also do that by Shabbat. If you really think that you wouldn't use it on chol, and now you're just saying on Shabbat, I'm going to use it, da da da, that's really not true. Because you wouldn't use it, and you wouldn't use it during a weekday, then you can't change its status for Shabbat. Gemara continues. 
Kshura in, lo kshura lo. Only if the vine is tied to the bucket is it okay to use on Shabbat. If it's not tied to the bucket, then it's not okay. Then it still remains Let's say our Mishnah cannot be authored by Rabbi Shimon Gamliel. Datanya, we have a brighter. Charayot shell dekel. You have these palm branches, this wood of the dekel. You cut them down in order to use them for firewood. And then you changed your mind and you want to use them to sit on. So the default status is if they were firewood, that's muksa. Now you want to change them into be using for yeshiva. How do you do that? So the Tanakam says, you have to do some maise, you have to tie them up, you have to bundle them so that they can be used as seats now or to be sat on. So if you tie them, then you've changed it from firewood into a seat. You do not need to tie it. You can just change its status. So the Gemara wants to suggest here that our Mishnah, who says you have to tie it in order to remove the shame muksa from the vine, is not like Rabshim Gamliel. Rabshim Gamliel says you can change the palm branches from being muksa to non-muksa. I simply say, I want to use it for yeshiva. Just wanted to use it for something else is enough. You don't need to tie, you don't have to do anything active. Our Mish can even be authored by Rabshim Gamliel. In the case over there is Mimichuberet Be'avia. It's attached to its origins. The vine is still attached. It's not a detached vine. That's what we've been speaking about until now. It's an attached vine. And you're using that as the rope to pull up the bucket. To use it to draw water. Wait a minute, then you're into a different problem. You're not allowed to use or utilize trees and plants on Shabbat that are mechubar the karka. Because we're afraid you're going to be shemitov. You're going to pick it off. You're going to break it off. So how can you use a vine as the rope to draw water that's attached to its parents? It's still attached to the grapevine. That's a surah right Now let you use something mechubar the karka. The says, the matamigimo. It's under three tfachim. This is going to come up in the Gemara and Eruvin. Where tells us that if you have the roots in the tree that are exposed, if they are within three tfachim, in the ground, you can still buttel the karka and you can sit on them. You can sit on those roots because that's not considered to be mishtamis mechuber the karka. And then if the roots are above three tefachim, then you cannot sit on them because they're considered to be separate from the ground and then it's mechuber the karka and you can't utilize them on Shabbat. So we're saying the same thing here. If the vine is below three tefachim, it's considered to be part of the karka. And therefore you're not mishtamish b'mechuber the karka, you're mishtamish b'karka, which was fine. Only if it's above three tefachim is it a problem because then you're mishtamish b'mechuber the karka. So the answer to the problem here is it's a case where it's below three tvachim. It's within three tvachim of the ground, and that's how you're using it. So that's how we can explain the case over here as being something that Rishim and Gamliel would agree with. Over here it's attached, and therefore until you tie it, it's not considered to be functional on Shabbat because it's attached to its vine. Attached to the vine, a vine is mechumbed karka, and you can't use it on Shabbat unless you've designated it ahead of time. How do you designate it ahead of time? You have to tie it. Over there, in the case of Chariyo Deco, you've already cut them. So by cutting them already, you've separated them from their origin. They're already flusha. Then Rabbi Shimon Gamliel will say you don't need to do anything except think that you want to use them for something mutar. That's enough. That's the difference in the cases. Then along comes Ravashi Amara Filutema B'tzmusha. Even in the case where the vine is detached, Gzeira Shema Yiktom. There's a difference here between the cases, which is, we have in general Gzeira Shema Yiktom. We come and you might prune it, cut it to the right size. So what we're afraid of by the vine is that Shemayiktom, you'll cut it to the right size and that's a violation of Makkah You're finishing off an item. You're doing the final touches that make it useful over here. So we're afraid, even if it's Tlusha, we're afraid that you're going to cut it down to size. So therefore, by the vine, we want it tied beforehand so that you don't cut it down to size because then we know that it's working. On the other hand, over here by the Chariot Shodekel, you don't need to cut them. You don't need to cut them off in order to make them into seats. 
It's enough simply to sit on them or want to sit on them in order to make them function on Shabbat. We don't worry about Shem Yiktom. So that's what Shimon Gamaliel's opinion is. Don't worry about Shem Yiktom over here. Whereas over in the case of the vine, we do worry about Shem Yiktom. And that will be the difference between his opinion here versus why he could be the author of our Mishnah as well. That they're not necessarily mutually exclusive. Right now, the last piece of the Gemara here for today is Pekach Talking about these shutters. Now this Gemara is very important and we have a big Machol of Rashi and Tosafot and this has Nafkamino to Allah today in many areas. Which is, Everybody agrees that you cannot make a non-permanent structure Ohel B'Yom Tov. Build an Ohel Arai on Shabbat or Yom Tov is impermissible. Not allowed. Machloket is whether you're allowed to add on to a temporary structure. Can you extend a temporary structure? Rabbi Eliezer says you may not add on. That's the house. You're adding on. It's a temporary thing that you pull in and out. Can you add on or not add on? Chachamim say you can add on to an olarai on Shabbat. And of course you can do that on Yom Tov. So the Machlokin here is about olarai. Can you extend an olarai on Shabbat and Yom Tov or not? Rabbi Eliezer says no. Chachamim say yes. Rashi says right away, what is an OLRI? What's considered to be an OL? Rashi says an OL is the covering. It's what's on top. It's the roof. That is what an OL is. So an OLRI, for instance, is an umbrella. You open up an umbrella, that's an OLRI. You open up the top of the umbrella, you've now created an OLRI on Shabbat. That's why you can't use an umbrella on Shabbat. On the other hand, if you have a cover that rolls out and rolls in on top of your sukkah, or on top of your pergola. If it's partly unrolled, then you can continue to unroll it on Shabbat to cover it up. That's an OL awry, because it opens and closes, but it's already partially there. It's already partially extended. You can continue to extend it, or you can roll it back. Because it's an oral, right? And it's Musif and Soter, Bone and Soter, they're the problem here. So you can roll it out, roll it back on Shabbat. Because that is the movement of an oral, right? That is Rashi's opinion. As far as the walls are concerned, that's not an OL. Walls are called Defanot. OL is the top. So Rashi says the same to what we see by Sukkah. Sukkah is the Schach. Schach is the covering on top. The Defanot, that's not the Sukkah. Those are the walls that hold up the Schach. So do by an OL. The walls that are there hold up the covering on top. That's the OL. And that's what we're discussing in the Gemara. Tosafot takes issue with that and says there are many times that the Gemara calls the walls an OL as well. And the same din that applies here to the top will apply to the walls as well. Rashi says for the walls, there's no din of OLRI extending an OLRI. You can put up walls whenever you want. You're not creating an OL. An OL is putting the roof on. So it says that even putting up the walls sometimes can be called OLRI. And there might be a problem of putting up walls to start with on Shabbat. But this has major nafkaminot in terms of things that we interact with on Shabbat. First of all, extending accordion walls. You pull them out and close them up. According to Rashi, of course there's no problem here. You're talking about a wall, you're not talking about a roof. So therefore there's no all right. According to Tosafot, oh wait, extending a wall, that might be a problem. But it's a case of Mosif. The way that they're made is that they extend and they retract. So that is fine on Shabbat because that's Mosif and that is Mosif and putting back an all right. One of the qualifications for something to be classified as already in place is a tefach. Because we know that what is the measurement of the designation of a OL? We know that from Tumah. It's a tefach cube. Tefach by a tefach by a tefach. So in order for something already to be qualified as an OL, it has to have a tefach. So strollers are a good example of that. Canopies on strollers. Are you allowed to extend the canopy on the stroller or retract the canopy? Well, it depends if the canopy is already open at tefach. canopy already exists at tefach, then to open the canopy and retract it is fine, because you're just extending the OL that is already there. 
if it's in a position, the canopy where it's not even a tefach, that to extend it on Shabbat might be problematic because then you're starting an ohel, you're not extending an ohel. Same might be too with a rain shield, a net, a fly net. All of these things that you put on there, the question will be, do you have a pre-existing OL? And now you're just extending it on top of it. Or, does nothing exist? And when you place this down, you're now creating an OL for the first time. That will have a nafkamino on Shabbat. The other area it has, nafkaminot, are in terms of halakhic walls. So right now, when we're talking about an right, we're talking about walls, we're talking about items that are solid and functional. They stay there. What happens if you put up something that is not so sturdy, but has a halakhic qualification of a wall? For instance, in sukkah. By sukkah, when you put up a wall, you don't need a full-fledged wall for the third wall of the sukkah, and that'll make it into a halakhic. So in that case, the Gemara says to put up the third wall of a sukkah, a sewer, even though it's not a sturdy wall, because that is building an oil around. You've changed the status halakhically of that area. Put up a fourth wall? No problem, because the sukkah doesn't need a fourth wall. So you put up the fourth wall as no nafkamina in terms of the lachic ramifications, and therefore putting up that wall is not a problem of making an all on Shabbat. This issue comes up with mechitzot in shul. To put up a mechitza to separate between the men and women in shul. Some of the achronim argue about this, whether that has halachic ramifications or not. When you put up the mechitza, does it now make it a place appropriate for men and women to daven? So that has halachic impact. And because of that, the mechitza is considered like putting up a mechitza on Shabbat of significance, and therefore it would be a sur on Shabbat. Or do we say that in terms of a shul, there's no halachic necessity to have a separate reshut for women to dominate. It's just something that we do, preventative measure, but it's not a halachic impact in terms of reshut. And therefore, it would be permissible to do on Shabbat, which is the generally accepted practice, is that to put up a mechitza, put out the mechitza area, for the women to be is considered to be permissible on Shabbat. Again, if you're extending the mechitza, shouldn't be a problem at all. If you're putting up a mechitza to start with, then you have to ask this question of how strong or structurally sound it is. Plus, it doesn't have halachic impact. So again, in general, we assume that that is fine. The better thing is to have at least a portion of the mechitza up beforehand so that you're simply considered to be extending an OLRI. Okay, we'll stop over here.